Welcome to the third episode of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me are Andrew Brown and Michael Majors. Together, we are two gold and one platinum level pro. And today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Last weekend was a standard open in Atlanta and a Grand Prix in Costa Rica. Standard is kind of what we're talking about this week, but this is going to be more of like a deck deck episode. So we're going to go fairly in-depth into green-white tokens, which has been a deck that has kind of been talked about a lot. We're going to have some new and different information, especially since I had a pretty good experience last weekend. But uh, first things first, we're going to talk about Standard just as a whole and kind of what's going on. And I know that Andrew had a card that he wanted to talk about. I was thinking a lot about Thing in the Ice recently, and it's good. it has a great matchup against Green-White and the Bant Human decks if you take away a Reflector Mage. I've been playing the Blue-Red Saito Flyers deck online a lot, and I have four Thing in the Ice in my sideboard, and it's been doing really, really well for me. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Also, the, the Mono Blue Prison deck went 8-1 on day one. I was his only loss. Ha ha. But also <laughs> just like could not say enough good things about Thing in the Ice. He was just like, this card's insane. It's so good. It's been insane for me, blah, 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 blah. And he was just like, I just I just kind of want to main deck them, you know? And it, it does just make me think that despite it not being like invulnerable, you know, like there are certainly some weaknesses to it. You have Reflector Mage, Declaration in Stone, and sometimes Dromokas Command that can take it out. But... Uh, when you get that card going, it is really good. And, you know, Todd Anderson used it to good effect for multiple weeks in a row. And I feel like that might be what Blue just wants to be doing right now. I think it also highlights the cyclical nature of just the standard format, how it was good in the past. And now since Green-White has risen, we might see the comeback of this uh, Blue-Red Fevered Visions thing in the ice deck. Yeah, standard just keeps going like around and around, it feels like. You know, it's like, oh, the company decks are not good this week, but now they're good this week with, you know, some some new upgrades or just like a different way to position itself. Like right now, uh, it's, it's Bant Humans, which is a deck that has been around. I think we talked about this a little bit last week and how I almost played it at the Pro Tour and stuff. And Yuya has just been killing it. And now just like everyone picked it up this weekend. I played against very few... Cryptolithrite decks, and I think zero traditional Bant Company decks, but Bant Humans was everywhere. Well, I think you have to take that sentence with a grain of salt. Yu-Yu was killing it with a deck. But I mean, like, then the deck gets out there, and more people are willing to pick it up. It's not just like, oh, Yu-Yu's winning with it, therefore it must be good, because that's just kind of like a ridiculous statement, right? You also have to consider, like, why would someone of Yu-Yu's caliber choose to play this deck? So it must be good on that matter. Yeah, I'm, and Yu-Yu's the guy who has been playing Delver. He's been playing Jund. Like, he's not the dude that is like, oh, I'm going to, like, brew some sweet deck or whatever and, like, crush people with it. He's just, he is the spikiest dude out of, like, I think the platinum-level professional players, and especially among the Japanese, I think. Like, he just almost always plays the best deck, and he tunes it really well. Like, his deck's always just look like you know they're kind of like weeks ahead of everyone else and in this case he's just like playing this kind of weird deck but i i trust his deck selection you know yeah for sure i i think at this point all the like non-cryptolithrite collected companies have firmly evolved into being this bant human shell and obviously it makes sense that the incorporation of eldrazi displacer would just make the deck better right yeah displacer was one of the scariest cards against me last weekend for sure and I, I found it somewhat surprising that more people were not playing that card. 
Well, I think it, it got featured in uh, the top eight of Grand Prix in Minneapolis, and now it's kind of just moved into the forefront. Uh, Todd Stevens got second place with a very streamlined version of Bant Humans with, I believe, three Eldrazi Displacer in the main deck. His deck looked really good, and it, it looks like the kind of stock list moving forward. Chihoy, Chihoy made top eight. He did not have Displacer, and then the other company deck that made top eight did, but it was like a Cryptolith Rite Eldrazi Smasher deck. When you look at this Bant Human deck, it's just an amalgamation of what we've already known to be the best stuff in standard. Like if we go look back at week one, we saw Bant Company, White Humans, and then those kind of, that deck is a combination of both of those. And then it took a page out of the Kirkle of Right deck, you know, just abusing the Reflector Mage Displacer combo. So it's just like this Frankenstein deck of really good things. Yeah, it is, for sure. It's just like you just shuffled all the decks together. Yeah, I mean, that that deck looked really good. I think still a lot of collected company decks that went pretty late in the tournament, and there was still some variety to them, but I do think the humans with Eldrazi Displacer is probably the best version of them. And also, you get to displace Sally as Lieutenant, which is a pretty big beating. Displacer with just everything. Like, all the creatures have Enter the Battlefield effects, you know, just that card is so good. Do you guys actually think there is merit to playing these like Cryptolithrite fair decks anymore or is Bant Humans just superior in every way? Well I think the human decks already had a good matchup against the like traditional four color Cryptolithrite deck so if they're moving just as fast um, I don't think there's any merit to playing it anymore. I do think that Cryptolithrite the card is really powerful in the mirror matches where if, if you like you both have displacers or recruiters or something like that and one player has right and the other person doesn't you you kind of just destroy them. I'm not entirely convinced that that card should just not be seeing play in these decks because there are a lot of things with activated abilities and even the human deck has like tireless tracker too. So you just have like a ton of stuff going on where if you have a bunch of mana, it's great. But I think the human deck is just more interested in killing people rather than accruing value, right? Yeah, I agree with that. Do you think like... So in, in most of these human decks, there's like one or two flex slots, like an Ojitai's Command or something along those lines. Do you think like playing one Cryptolithrites in your deck or maybe like sideboarding one or two, like is that an option that this deck has? Because like you said, it has a ton of mana sinks. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely fine with that. If it, you know, the games are going to come down to like these little board stall type situations, especially post-board if people have like Tragic Arrogance, for example, like it just ends up like slowing the game down a bunch. It might be better to just have a card like Cryptolithrite that allows you to like play the game a little bit slower, take a turn off from just like trying to kill your opponent and just like accrue some card advantage. Like Thraven Inspector becomes your, your functional limb dread at that point, which is pretty cool. As far as standard being cyclical, I feel like the mono white or light splash human decks are just a big part of that where their matchups are very polarizing. And at this point, it felt like Tom's deck was well positioned and Tom did it. You know, he won the tournament. And is there going to be like a backlash to this? Because like the, the human decks did pretty well in Minneapolis, like the nearly mono white ones. And it won this open. Don't think it did very well in Costa Rica. But is it one of those things where if the format shifted, like humans would not be well positioned, but I feel like the format may, might not shift. So like you could probably just run it back next week. I don't think so i think that tom's victory was kind of overshadowed by seth winning in costa rica with green white and your ridiculous tear with green white obviously he won and you know his deck was good he came up he played the right cards but in the end you guys got more press than he did i think i don't know man it's the boss it is it is the boss and you know he's 
I he's in my living room right now writing his article on the deck. Like people are definitely <laughs> gonna see it, they're gonna read it. Since we got more press than he did, do you think it's just like safe for him to like run it back this weekend if there was another standard tournament? For him personally, I think it's safe to run it back, but generally in a cyclical metagame sense, I would not. If you guys believe the metagame is cyclical, then the assumption would be that like black white control and other language decks like that would be very popular in the next standard tournament or what? Well, I feel like those decks should, in theory, be really good because the format is a bunch of green and white creature decks, especially green, white, and even like the Bant uh, human company decks. Like those decks are have built themselves in a way to just like outmaneuver those decks, like out card, card advantage them. And the, the cyborg plans against black, white are really powerful. And just doing something like casting a language doesn't guarantee that you beat anyone. Yeah, I think the big takeaway from that is like, what we might perceive as like green white creature decks the de- the decks in standard right now have kind of transcended that you know you you kind of think of just like playing some mopey creatures and maybe pumping them and attacking your opponent and kind of you know moving all in or maybe picking your spot and playing like one or two resilient things but uh bant humans and green white tokens are not at all like that they have you know planeswalkers and collected company and tons of built-in card advantage into their creatures and you know they can get tricky with reflector mage and eldrazi displacer and archangel Abbasid. Like there's just they can attack on so many angles yeah you play like thraven inspector into a tireless tracker like with an evolving wilds and you just have a million clues and they're like languish you you're like yeah i don't care it just doesn't matter you you might hold me down for a little bit but if the game goes long like these decks just outdraw the control decks which is pretty sick and it, it seems like black white's role in all this is just like keep the board kind of clear but eventually use something like gideon or secure the waste or linvala to just get ahead and turn that corner like i feel like these decks are just like this sort of like weirdish beatdown strategy where they're just trying to not die in the first five turns and then just kill their opponent with like big big effects well that's something that like jerry's touched on um you know some articles and we, we've talked about it on this podcast a little bit is this idea that the most important thing in like design principles right now gravitates towards lots of permanence on the battlefield and like that's what's so important it's like this black white deck if it can't get traction if it can't stick a gideon or a nominixless or a soren and slowly accrue some card advantage by staying ahead on the board clearing the board and then you know turning the corner beating down their opponent then they're going to lose they can't actually just you know draw a million cards with something like traditionally read the bones would be powerful but and black-white, it's just the bridge that lets you get to your win conditions or planeswalkers. So going forward, I think what is going to happen is that the best decks are probably going to stay pretty close to the top. The black-based control decks definitely have to shift a little bit, uh, especially if my green-white plan picks up a little bit. I know that Cedric Phillips used Linvala to good effect for that reason. Uh, not only did it give you like two big threats, but it stabilized your life total a little bit, gave you something to attack Planeswalkers, and was something that was like really tough for my deck specifically to deal with. And especially with like the bad human decks and the various collected company decks, Linval is just like a very potent threat against them too. And I think that card is going to start seeing more and more play potentially in the main decks. Other than that, I don't know. We, we might see some little shifts here and there. Tom's deck may or may not be good. I believe that the Tom is of the opinion that his deck is, is still good. Other than that, I think we should probably just, you know, get to get to talking about me. Talk about the green-white tokens deck and how my tournament went. So Yeah, let's let's just spend all about you. It's all about you. Jerry, That's you did we're... look great this weekend, so Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I saw uh, you put some effort into your hair, so dude, uh I did. <laughs> I think we should start on your hair, and then we should move on to the deck. Do you think Jerry is vain for doing his hair in the morning? Absolutely not. He's doing everybody a service. It's a public service. 
Okay, I guess we're going to go into a little segue here. I don't know. I, I think that with, you know, where I am in Magic, I'm like somewhat noticeable, right? And Todd Stevens has kind of inspired me to just like care a little bit more about my presentation. And I think that is a good thing. I don't know if that makes me vain or not. It is what it is. I 100% agree. I think caring about the way you present yourself in a, for you, this is a professional setting, is completely reasonable. Also, I'm very vain. So there's that. So <laughs> anyway, as far as the actual tournament, I went 15-0 in the Swiss. And that was kind of sweet. I lost five games total during the Swiss rounds. I did have two buys, so that's kind of like cheating. Over the course of the tournament, I slowly realized that my deck was just great. I don't know. I just, I built the deck with the knowledge that I had and kind of slanted it towards having a more coherent sideboard strategy. And I felt like I just basically outclassed all my opponents because they were trying to like stay beat downy and I was not doing that. And then they would just have like all these lambhole pacifists and like kind of mopey creatures that didn't really do anything. Meanwhile, I'd be like going nuts with Evo Leap or playing stuff like Linvala and just kind of just destroying them. So my deck was the same 60 that I played in the mocks, but my sideboard was a little bit different and I will post the deck in the description below because, you know, I, I can't imagine that everyone's memorized it or anything. But yeah, my sideboard was, I played around Burst instead of Tragic Arrogance. I had some kind of like divination type things in this Vastwood Seer. I had Linvala at the top end and the worst card was Enlightened Aesthetic, but whatever. You know, I, I just felt like that would kind of solve some of the holes that I had. But the main deck was pretty simple. It was a lot of four ofs, some two ofs, and 26 land. And I, I think one thing that people are kind of doing wrong is not playing for Oath of Nyssa and or not playing 26 land. Why is that incorrect? Well, first well, of all, it's crazy not to play for Oath of Nyssa. I think it's just actually the best card in the deck since it allows you to play on curve, which is just the most important thing in this deck in game one. Being able to cast your Nyssa and your Gideons on turn three and four respectively and digging towards a two drop is extremely important when you're trying to get on the battlefield and use your Dramokus commands. And it, you know, does all those things, mana fixes you, finds threats. It's just perfect. Yeah, what he said. I mean, that that's basically it. I like, I am way more concerned with missing land drops than I am trying to find something to do when I'm flooded. Especially the way the deck is built in the post-board games. Like, you have so much to do with your mana. You use your mana every turn. And that's kind of like a hallmark of just various decks that I play, whether they're control decks or mid-range decks. And... Oath of Nyssa just kind of brings it all together. It's like the, the same principle as like how Ponder is busted in Delver, like that type of thing. And when that card was first spoiled, I was just like, this card is not Ponder. This is this is just silly. You know, this card is telling me that I only can play with like creatures, planes, walkers, and lands. Lo and behold, this green white token deck is awesome. I love it. I'm, I'm probably not playing anything else ever. And Oath of Nyssa is just perfect for it. What about the 26 land? Oh, it's just the same thing. Like I, I hate missing my land drops. I feel like... If you ever don't do something on a turn, like standard, the standard games are not over necessarily very quickly, but at the same time, if you just like skip a turn, not doing anything like those decks punish you and win the game very quickly, or at least like start snowballing out of control with like collecting companies and stuff where you just can't catch back up. Another thing that I did was cut a Westvale Abbey for another colored source, just because like I hate being mana screwed. And I feel like it is just one of the, the easiest ways for you to just lose games in this format. You're also probably less likely to activate your Westvale Abbey with you no know, secure the ways of the main deck, which is something to consider as well. Yeah, that is true also. And th there was certainly a time where various red-green decks were very scary. Like they were a decent portion of the metagame, but now I think that's 
Just kind of not the case. Ramp is not huge. Uh, Westvale Abbey flipping into Ormondal is is not game over really against anyone because people just have various answers for it. Secure the Waste is just a card that I feel like is basically only good against control. I mean, there, there are some times where you just kind of like use it as a fog to block their stuff. Sometimes you can take a really aggressive stance with Nyssa and Gideon, but the, the mantra with this deck is just don't try and kill your opponent. Like, all you want to do is just sit there in a Caruso advantage, whether it's just like board position, cards in hand, working your evolutionary leap, whatever it is, your opponent is eventually just going to get ground out and die to whatever you have going on. One of the things that my opponents continually did against me was just make these like hyper-aggressive lines that just like almost never worked out, you know? It, they would just like use their Dramokus command early to try and like start pressuring my Planeswalker, not even necessarily get my Planeswalker off the battlefield, but just take away half its loyalty or something. And it's just like, okay, well now I'm going to untap, like play two or three spells and you're, you're just like back in the same hole, except you also just don't have your Dramokus command anymore. Well, I think your deck is definitely better suited for these grindier games, seeing as you're playing Evolutionary Leap and Dem Protector in your main deck. And that's true, but at the same time, I feel like that is the best plan in these matchups. So how did you come to these numbers, though? Like the two two Evo Leap, two Den Protector, like, how'd you come to those? So everything kind of works off each other. I don't know, it's just very, very interesting for me. Where So you have Evolutionary Leap, which is basically seen as this card that is basically only good against control. It's just like whenever they play a removal spell on your creature, you sacrifice it to, the, to Evolutionary Leap and like get another creature, right? When you're playing against something like a Collected Company deck, it feels like, oh, there's just like a lot of trading happening on the battlefield. So like you can't stack damage anymore or anything like that. So you could like chump block and use the leap. And, but that's just like not a way to win the game. But at the same time, you play like a hanger back on one or two. And then you maybe start taking it up. And then if they ever go to Reflector Mage it, instead of you just having this like backbreaking thing happen to you, you just get to sack it to the leap. And now you have access to a couple Thopter tokens. You can maybe cash those into the leap if you have time. Maybe find an Archangel Avacyn. Leap turns on the Avacyn. And it's just so sweet that you can leap into a Den Protector and then use Den Protector to get back either like a Planeswalker or a Command, a Declaration and Stone. It just like breaks what the card is doing for you because it allows you to get any card back. I definitely think Evo Leap got a lot better in this deck because you get to insulate it with um, Oath of Nyssa in the mirror matches. Absolutely, and that's that's kind of a huge deal too. Leap kind of is just indestructible. Like, there are some Anguish Unmakings running around. There are some discard spells that can snipe it. Yeah, there is Dromokus Command, and sometimes, like, that is nerve-wracking, where, like, you don't have an Oath of Nyssa, and you just have to, like, run the leap out there because you plan on using it or whatever. And if they have Command, it's just backbreaking. But like I said, my opponents were just, like, blowing their commands very aggressively, so... I basically never had to worry about that, but I've played enough games of this format and specifically like with this deck to know that the games are just not about getting on board and like, you know, making a 4-4 pacifist as quickly as possible or like securing for three and then just like playing a bunch of anthems like those plans just almost never work out. Part of that is because of Avacyn and her ability to reset the board kind of at will, especially once you have Evolutionary Leap. I, I just feel like this plan is not only more consistent, but it's more powerful against other decks in the format, and it's the best thing for you to be doing in the mirror. So, two Leap main deck is a pretty easy inclusion for me, and the Den Protectors make the leaps good, and then the two Declaration and Stones are kind of a necessity if you want Den Protector to be good, but also you're playing this more controlling game, so you kind of want to have more things that interact with the battlefield anyway. And like you said, when you're always working towards these like 
insurmountable positions on the battlefield, like you know, giving your opponent like a, a card with Declaration Stone, or you know, just sitting back and not pushing your advantage because you have you know this engine of Hangerback Walker Evolutionary Leap, and you can hold up Abyssin, and you might have a Planeswalker on the battlefield. Like you can just like you're probably winning those games. You can just sit back and be patient. Yeah, absolutely. The downside certainly is when you have to just like stone their two drop because if you don't, you're not doing anything, and then they're progressing their board. And you can see, you know, a few turns down the line where, like, not stoning that is going to leave you so far behind that you have to do it. Like, that is kind of a feel-bad moment for sure, especially since you plan on playing kind of a long game, but it just is the best card for what it does. It's very important in the post-board games where, you know, you're trying to kill Kalidus or Linvala or a bunch of secure tokens from Black-White. It's just the most versatile removal spell, and I think that the deck overall just wants a couple more removal spells main deck. And so you're pairing the two declarations with four Dramokas Command, right? Yeah, I think I think Command is likely the best one. I mean, it, it is so versatile. There, there are just random things that come up where like people have Kozilek's Return, or uh, actually in the tournament, I used it to make sure that my Gideon always outpaced my opponents in Gulf the Shores. Awesome. So yeah, that's cool. it, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, like it kills enchantments. I I took out a couple Cryptolith rights over the course of the tournament. I don't think I ever really did anything great, like you know, kill their Stasis Snare or Silk Wrap or, or anything like that. I did kill Tom's always watching in the top eight. So the card is just super versatile. It makes combat really difficult for your opponent, where you just get to send in Sylvan Advocate a lot with just no fear because you know that they can't realistically block. It made my Den Protector big enough to attack Planeswalkers, you know, it puts a counter on Avacyn to live through Languish, just like there's there's so many tiny things that it does. Let's your Avacyn flip, you can have a smaller creature just like suicide into one of theirs, and then just have your Avacyn flip, wrap them, and be way ahead. Yep, and I, I don't think I had that come up, but that is, I mean, that might have just been something I missed. So I'm really interested in this new sort of change you made where you're playing Planar Outburst over Tragic Arrogance in your sideboard. It always occurred to me that like Arrogance would just be better because your creature quality is so high that you would always want to keep one. But this Outburst, I don't know, it's weird. Explain it to me. Tragic Arrogance is the the dream, basically. It's like, oh man, you keep your Hangerback Walker, your Advocate, your Evolutionary Leap, and you just like kill all their stuff, basically. You leave them with like a Thraben Inspector, right? But I played too many games against the Cryptolithrite decks, or specifically like the Band Company decks, where they would have like Recruiter, Tracker, Displacer in play. And I would definitely want to be, be able to play my five mana card, but I also didn't want to leave them with either of those creatures. Making sure that the board get, gets actually wiped clean every single time is really important, especially because of how tough those cards are to deal with. You know, like each one of them allows them to use their mana to gain some sort of advantage and they their deck is built so much as to like maximize that advantage. So like those cards are all super scary and I want to make sure that they just die all the time because Arrogance is a pretty common sideboard plan out of this deck and it's also like somewhat easy to play around. So... I built this deck like Thursday before the tournament. I was tinkering with the main deck. I wanted to play a Chandra for science, but I just ultimately decided that that was not worth it. And I, I actually just wanted to do as well in the tournament as I could. So I moved some stuff around and oddly enough, just like ended up with my 60 from the mocks. So I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. And then I was working on the sideboard and was like laying out all the potential cards. And I was like, I don't know how good Arrogance is. I just remembered those moments where, like, did I really need to keep, like, that Sylvan Advocate? Was it really a big deal? Because realistically, it's not. And I know that some people were playing, like, 2-1 and one or 2-2, two and two, and I was like, okay, you know, like, let's look at 2-1, and one, see how that looks like. And then I was like, no, this is just stupid. Like, let's just play all the uppers and 
That was one of the best changes I made, I think. Outburst was very, very good. I did cast it with Awaken twice, even though I thought that Awaken was only three instead of four. The card is just very good, quite powerful. Did you see any uh, surprise factor, like get your opponent extra hard, like they were playing around Tragic and then you played the Outburst? Uh, not that I can remember. I know that my first run of day two, I played against Black Green Company, Crypto with Rights deck, the Aristocrats deck. And there was a turn where he had like Nantuko Husk and two Tireless Trackers. And I just outbursted him. If I didn't have Outburst, he would just like be able to keep a tracker there. And that's, it also just like killed my Hangerback Walker, which was my only creature. And then I made four Thopters, got me closer to just transforming Ormondal. And it was just really, really good. Uh, to, to play Devil's Advocate here, do you think, like, if green-white token mirror matches become slanted more towards your deck with Evolutionary Leap, do you think the ability to remove your opponent's Evolutionary Leap because they have an Oath of Miss on the battlefield would be relevant? Well, we did kind of talk about this last weekend, how I don't even really like Arrogance in the mirror matches. Would you? But you would be interested in bringing in Planar Outburst in the mirrors? No. Oh, okay. No, I don't okay. like either of them. Okay. Uh, that, that's kind of why I had the Enlightened Ascetic, actually. It was just like, there. there's enough stuff, like Evolutionary Leap, if if people are actually drinking my Kool-Aid and trying to do the same things that I am. I do want Ascetic to break up their Leap. There are Fevered Visions, which I am just deathly afraid of. I, I kind of wanted to hedge against the Saito Blue-Red deck because I did think it looked good and it certainly looked like a very tough matchup. I was talking about like maybe playing like Aerial Volley or something too, but the Ascetic just seemed like a solid hedge against enough things that I wanted in my sideboard, but I don't think I ever cast it. Uh, moving on to another card in your sideboard, uh, Linvala. Talk to us about that a little bit. That one was really good. Uh, <laughs> it, w- it was also particularly good against me. Like C- Cedric and I kind of independently figured out that Linvala was just awesome. It's just one of those cards against the Collected Company decks where it just stabilizes you immediately. It's so big. Like, the, both bodies are huge. It gains you life. It flies, which is insane. It, it's just, like, the best thing that you can be doing for six mana. If I was going to play, like, a Tragic Arrogance or Planar Outburst, it's not that unreasonable for them to just reload because they know it's coming. And then you just you play, like, Wrath into Linvala, and that deals with their first wave and their second wave, and then Linvala is just super difficult to deal with, and then you either kill them with it or just, like, leverage that into buying you time. It's also just, like, an excellent card with Evolutionary Leap. That, you know, you can you can dig into it and kind of set up and immediately stabilizes the board, even though you kind of, like, sacrifice some of your board position to the Evolutionary Leap, and then it gives you two bodies to sack to the Leap, you know, if necessary. Yeah, so <laughs> Cedric, in one of our games, he played Linvala, and it was just like, yeah, make a 3-3 Angel. I was like, hold on, buddy. And I just, like, <laughs> sacked a bunch of my stuff to Leap in response. He's like, you're too smart. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Linvala is more cyclically good? Because I remember in our Pro Tour testing, it was just not really up to snuff. But do you think since the metagame has shifted toward more of these green, white, and bad human decks, it's like the one thing you have to have in your white sideboard? In in the mirror matches, I was only bringing in one Linvala. I don't know if that's correct or not. I do feel like the format has kind of slowed down because people are in kind of this arms race to just like draw the most cards with Duskwatch Recruiter or uh, Tireless Tracker and, you know, make sure that we can actually compete in these long and grindy games. And then you just play a Linvala and they just die. So the slower the format gets, like the more mid-rangey these decks become, the better Linvala is. I would not recommend Linvala if your metagame is full of boss humans, for example, because six mana is just way too slow against that deck. But if, if the decks are more green and white based, then yes, Linvala is excellent. Another card in your sideboard I want to talk about is uh, Nissa Vastwood Seer. I really liked it, pairing it with Planar Outburst, how you can, it can effectively dodge the Wrath. Uh, talk to us about that one. 
this is Major's favorite card. This is his baby. I'm just going to let him handle this one. Well, to make a long story short, I, I probably really undervalued Borderland Ranger and Civic Wayfinder back in their day. So sorry, I didn't give you the respect you deserve. But having a Grey Ogre that gets you a land and effectively bridges you into, you know, Archangel Avacyn or Linval the Preserver or your Planar Outburst. And the fact that this deck is so built around Evolutionary Leap. All you want to do if you have Evolutionary Leap on the battlefield is just make every land drop. And so Nissa is awesome in the early game for just making your draw functional. It's also an incidental body for Dramoka's Command. It can pressure Planeswalkers. But if you draw it late in the game, then suddenly you have this premium threat that actually didn't cost you that much mana. On turn 10 or whatever, you can you know play Nissa immediately flipper, draw an additional card, make a 4-4 that's relevant. And at any point that Nissa starts to live for a turn or two, she can just snowball out of control completely. Yeah, that's basically it. I will say that my sideboard plan was doable because I had Nissa's in my sideboard, and Nissa was far and away my best card, and it was not particularly close. Like, after this tournament and seeing what, what happened, I am very interested in just kind of like a complete overhaul of this deck. Nissa Vestwood Seer would kind of be at the forefront of that, where, like Major said, I mean, it, it just facilitates having all these expensive cards in your sideboard. Like, you board in all these five and six mana cards, and then you board in this thing that also helps you hit your land drops and get there. You know, if you need to, like, she's a body. She can block. She can trade with something or even chump block or get sacked evolutionary leap or whatever. Like, she buys you a bunch of time and makes it so your outbursts are really good and is just the best threat, too. It's like, there there are some planeswalkers, the the plant Nissa and Gideon, where it's like, ah, oh, if, they, if they stay in play for a while, it's pretty bad for you, but you can still win. But with this Nissa, it's just like, you get so far ahead of them so fast because, like, all of your cards translate into more cards. Have you ever had a situation where you kind of have the first world planeswalker problem and you have two Nissas out? Nope. Do you board out the other Nissa? A lot of that's because you're sideboarding them out, right? Yep. <laughs> so, nope. Yep. Yeah, so my plan against the Mirror and the, the various Collected Company decks was basically just take out all the Nissas, all the Dromokas commands, and then a forest on the draw. I was not on the play a lot, so I did not get to mess around with things too much but like the more i played games on the draw the more i was just like at no point do i want to plant nissa more than comfortable taking out a land if i feel like my opponent is going to give me time to the point where like i can afford to miss some land drops and it's not going to be a big deal there were some people like chihoy where i know that he's just like super tight aggressive and it's just like if i miss a land drop i am dead like he is he is just going to capitalize on that and pounce so it's it's kind of a little risky and you know, sometimes I would switch things up. Like, again, if, if they were, like, super tight aggressive, I would not want the leaps because I don't think I'm going to be in a spot where I'm going to be able to grind with them. Like, I'm probably not going to be able to take a turn off to play them and stuff. So sometimes I would just, like, keep in a couple commands, keep in the 26 land, cut the leaps, maybe trim in Avacyn, just try to lower my curve a little bit. There were also games where if I was boarding in too many spells, then I would just have to cut the Oath of Nissa's or at least, like, trim on them to some degree. But, yeah, most of the time, Nissa Voice of Zendikar and Nissa Vest would here we're just not in my deck at the same time. I'm actually surprised you cut a forest on the draw instead of a Westvale Abbey when you're boarding out your Nissa voices in the card. Yeah, I mean, maybe that was wrong. I don't know. Okay. Westvale Abbey happened for me a couple rounds, like, pretty early in the tournament, so it, it seemed just kind of like, you know, the oh shit button or whatever, where it did win me, like, two games straight up, like, in rounds three and five or something, so... Yeah, it's, it's never like the A plan, but sometimes it all comes together and it's great. Yeah, it's like the D plan, and generally I, I felt like my mana base was good enough, but yeah, it, that is certainly a talking point. I, I could have been cutting Westville Abbey. So against Tom Ross, I did not side out in any lands. 
So, like, you know, when I was Man of Screwed and only had a Westville Abbey, I, I didn't cut any lands, but... Oh, I, I didn't even think about that. That would actually been pretty funny. Not that the forest would have helped me or anything. Right, but, right, right. But it's just particularly painful. A couple rounds that stood out to me. The first was against Andrew Jessup. He was playing Green-White Mirror. I think this was round seven on camera. And I won game one. Don't remember the particulars. But game two... He's on the play. At this point, I've like kind of solidified my sideboarding plan. I basically just cut like Nissa's commands in a forest and brought in, uh, I think, two stone, two Nissa, one Linvala, two Stasis Snare, and a Den Protector. Because I didn't know if he was like going to have Evolutionary Leap or Stasis Snare or anything like that. So I just left the Ascetic on the bench. And I generally don't like the Sweepers just because like they don't they don't clean up the Planeswalkers, you know? And it makes you harder. It makes it more difficult to get into a spot where you can actually attack the Planeswalkers. So outbursts just seemed like counterintuitive because if I was losing, it was probably because of a Gideon. We play this game where he like, you know, plays a pacifist or whatever, and maybe like plays a Dromokas command, tries to get ahead. I stabilize and it just gets to a point where like he's kind of flooded and just runs out of gas. And I'm sitting there with like an Evo leap and just doing whatever, you know, I'm just doing a million different things every turn. He's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually, you know, he's just like, you got me. And then afterward, he was like, you know, I felt like being on the play, like, I could just get get an aggressive draw and maybe, like, take out one of your planeswalkers and it'd be hard for you to stabilize. And I caught, like, all my hangerback walkers and stuff. And, like, you know, do you think that that was right? I've been in this spot before where I've helped previous opponents after I beat them with sideboarding and then they go on to beat me in top eight. Like, that has actually happened (laughs) twice within the last year. So this time I was like, I don't want to be dishonest, but at the same time, I don't want to tell him how to sideboard against me, or I don't want to tell him, you know, like what actually matters, what's going on in in the matchup, especially since like his brother is in the tournament playing the same deck and is also doing pretty well, you know, I'm just like, well, man, you know, that, that definitely seems like a thing that could happen. Like I get that, you know, that you could definitely just get this beat down draw and I could lose to that. And then I just like tried to get out of there. escape so sure enough i play against his brother uh, like pretty late in day two and he, he does kind of the same thing like boards into this beatdown deck and i was just like oh god you know but like i still couldn't say anything to him because he was still live for top eight still neither of them ended up making it but it was still just like i realized at that point kind of that i was on to something and that i just had everyone just kind of dominated in these post-board matchups Assuming everyone that's playing Green White Token starts to evolve towards that mind stance or whatever you want to call it, towards being more controlling, not trying to get hyper aggressive or you know push their advantage or limit pacifists, early Dramatic's commands, things along those lines, how can you kind of start to level them again? I don't know. I think it's dangerous. This is like one of those things where so back in the day I was playing Dark Depths and I was trying to come up with like a sideboard plan for Zoo where like you take out some of your Thopter Foundry stuff because they all have Damping Matrix and, you know, they have Path for your 2020s. And I was like, I want to try a bunch of spot removal and maybe some Chase the Mind Sculptors. Eventually, I was just like, well, the fourth death mark could be like a more expensive, maybe more powerful removal spell because I have enough removal to get me time to like play a removal spell on turn five. So I was like, well, maybe I should play Ribbons of Night. And then I was like, well, no, maybe I should play Exile into Darkness, and that'll just like, lock him out of the game. And then I was like, well, okay, now I want two Exile into Darknesses. And then I was like, well, wait a second. What if I just play a Gifts Ungiven instead of the second Exile into Darkness, and it's like a functional second Exile into Darkness? You just like go down this rabbit hole where you're playing against some guy who just has the Lambhole Pacifist stuff, and he just beats the crap out of you because you just made your deck a pile of nonsense. Would you like to briefly explain what Exile in the Darkness is for everyone. It, I, don't, it, I, don't, I don't know what this card does for the record. Oh, Andrew. It, you would you love would it, Andrew. You would love this card. Yeah, it's incredible. All right, let me, let me prepare myself. 
You ready? You just let me know when you're ready. All right, I'm ready. It is 4B sorcery. Uh, target opponent or player, I'm not sure, sacrifices a creature with converted mana cost three or less. Okay. You with me so far? S- sounds not worth it so far. <laughs> At the beginning of your upkeep, if you have more cards in hand than your opponent, return it to your hand. This is the best card ever. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Also, Jeez. I just realized that it should exile creatures, but oh well. Well, yeah, maybe but... maybe you could you could make a claim for like the graveyard being the darkness and your you know I I guess yes. yeah yeah you know but, but no they, those... it was removed from game back then right there wasn't an exile right right like, path but... to path to exile came out and there wasn't an exile yeah that's that's just a flavor question for down the line. So anyway, be careful. That's all I'm saying. When you're building these weirdo sideboard plans and you're trying to participate in this arms race, just be really careful. Don't screw your deck up too much. I would say that third Nissa Vastwood Seer is probably very good. Linvala is is very good. And, you know, if they're playing like a slower game, then maybe you want to bring in the second one. There's probably less need for Declaration in Stone, so you could maybe board in less of those. And then the Enlightened Ascetic would probably become very important because you would want to be able to bust up their Evo Leap. But past that, I'm not sure. I think it is just like Nissa Vest would see your advantage. You know, like once you get this personal Howling Mine in play and you start getting to work, like it, it probably means that you are ahead because you were able to protect this Nissa for a while. And it means that you are definitely going to stay ahead because you are outdrawing your opponent. I mean, going forward, if these green-white decks just try to continuously game against each other, um, does that open the door for other decks to perform well? Like, will the green-white monster just devour itself? That's entirely possible. I mean, and certainly if these green-white decks just, like, start targeting each other and they take out more and more cards for other matchups and stuff, like, I could, I could definitely see a world where either, like, Boss Human shows up or even, like, the Bant human deck, where it's like, they they also have a bunch of card drawing, and they have negate, which is huge. Like, it allows them to to go under you a little bit, be slightly less powerful, but maybe counter your Haymaker. Den Protector was probably the card that I was scared of that Chihoi did not have, just because he was able to, like, get pretty good use out of Dromoka's Command and negate at various points, but at no point did he ever have, like, a split card. And I think that's pretty important, you know? At, at some point, you're just... The, the games are going to either go, like, one of four different ways or something, and you're just going to want a split card to have, like, either the negate or the command or the Thawing's Lieutenant or whatever that you need at a moment's notice. So uh, a cyber plane with, like, Dem Protector and negate is probably really scary. As far as just in general, I jokingly referred to this deck as Crawblade, which was... <laughs> After, after I 15-0'd, I, I went up to Cedric and Nick Miller. I was like, I need a green-related pun for Cobblade because I'm pretty sure that's what this deck is because it, it feels so similar where not only are you playing a bunch of mythic rares, but you also have this insane sideboard plan where it just felt like no one ever knew what your deck was supposed to be doing or what they were supposed to be doing against you. So it just always felt like... It felt very similar to Callblade, where it's just like, oh, they're they're gonna try and load up on removal for your batter skull, and then you just kill them with Jace or whatever. It it was like the exact same type of stuff, and I've not felt that in such a long time. Crawblade is you know Crawworm with with a sword, I guess, but it is it is just like a a green Callblade type of thing. I thought it was hilarious, but I honestly do think that uh, my deck, at least for this tournament, was as good as as Callblade. Did you realize that actually every single spell in the main deck is a rare? I did not know that. That is actually gas. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the deck list right now, and it never occurred. Yeah, to me. it's just 
everything that is not basic land is rare. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's kind of ridiculous. What about the sideboard? I know there is the uh, enlightened ascetic. I, and I have stasis snare, and that's it. Maybe I need to. Maybe I need to cut those cards. Yeah, get those get out more of there. rares in here. Just all rares all the time. That is absurd. That that is actually truly absurd. Anyway, yeah, this deck is Cobblade, and I know that a lot of people are going to be like, "Dude, come on!" But I'm telling you, like, obviously, I got kind of lucky to go 15-0, 16-1, whatever. There were certainly moments where I had like some pretty nice top decks, and a lot of them were on coverage. But no, I feel like my deck was so far ahead of everyone else that I can't fathom playing anything else. Because especially in in the height of Cobblade, like you could just you know, if a problem came up, you could just tune your deck to beat it. And I feel like that is what this deck is capable of doing. Yeah, I mean, if you look at all the results of all these standard tournaments, like, it's always doing well. It won the Pro Tour. It always puts about three, four, two copies of it in the top eight. Like, this deck is kind of getting to that Cobblade standpoint, and I don't know what can stop it. Yeah, and people are just playing random cards, you know? Like, they don't even necessarily have great plans, and I feel like I had a great plan, and that just, like, solidified everything. So I'm curious to know what's going to happen. Like, I don't get to play Standard this weekend. I think, like, GP Pittsburgh is probably the next time, and it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, I I think a a big part of doing well is going to be figuring out how to position yourself in a green-white token mirror. I certainly agree with that. Or just find something that beats it. Like, uh, Hugo Terra playing the blue-white flash deck. Mm -hmm. I feel like I I watched him play a little bit, and his deck seemed like a nightmare. Really? Really? So, so what exactly is his deck doing? He was just like the Rattle Chains, Dimensional Infiltrator stuff, but he also had Reflector Mage and Spot Removal and a bunch of counter spells. Like, I guess like, I look at his list now, but we were talking about, like, you know, does he have Ogetize Command? Does he have Archangel Avacyn? Oh, he had Stratus Dancer, too, which which is pretty insane. Did he have Thunderclap Wyvern? No Wyverns, no. He just had a couple Bygone Bishops. Yeah. Uh, Bygone Bishop. Invocation of St. Traft, 2x in his main deck. Aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. It's really aggressive. Yeah, but but no Avacyn, no Ojedi's Command either. He he was just like a fish deck. And it's just like, I'm trying to play expensive sorceries. Like, obviously, if you can stop them from getting traction, you just kill other creatures or whatever, then their counterspells don't matter. But it's really hard to do that unless you're playing something like Aerial Volley. So there's two matchups that I haven't played against that seem like on paper they would be difficult. They're the blue-red uh, Eldrazi deck that Michael Seagal top-aided with and the mono-blue prison deck. Do you have any thoughts on those? Yeah, so I played against both of those in the tournament, and I smushed them both. I, I 2 owed both of them. My match against Joshua Dickerson was close-ish. It, it's, like, always nail-biting because, like, you never know what sort of powerful thing he's going to do, like whether or not he's going to be able to, like, chain off or, like, whether he has perfect answers or anything. In game one, my draw was not great, but on turn five, he had to skip his land drop, play Days Undoing. And then I untapped, played Gideon, made an emblem, and then played two more Hangerback Walkers, just as Memnites. And then from there, he was just, like, in a spot where he was taking a bunch of damage, and Engulf the Shores was not great, and he never found a Jace's Sanctum to actually start pulling ahead. And then in Game 2, he played Pour Over the Pages with a thing in the ice in play, making his thing in the ice go down to one counter, and then if he found an Anticipator and Nagging Thoughts, then he would have been able to transform his thing in the ice and kill my Gideon, and that probably would have been game over. But he just bricked on that, and then uh, I don't I don't remember what I did to the thing in the ice. I assumed I killed it somehow. Maybe I needed the Gideon to become a 5-5 so I could fight it with command, something like that. But it was like, past that, uh, whenever he would try to engulf the Shores me or whatever, I would just have a command to like put my Gideon out of range. And then against Seagull, he was playing Blue-Red Eldrazi, 
And again, look, the counter spells are super scary to play against because you're just like, God, I'm going to invest four mana in this Gideon and it's just going to get countered and then they're going to untap play like Hedron Archive and still have like Spell Shrivel open. And then two turns later, they're going to play an Ulamog. Like, how am I supposed to kill them in this amount of time, you know? Just ended up where, I don't know, I was able to like remove his Drowner of Hopes and kind of like put my things out of Kozilek's return range and he maybe missed some land drops or whatever, like... I just try and keep both those decks under pressure, and it's fine. You know, like, a lot of the decks I sideboard in such a way where I try to be controlling, and against these decks, it was the complete opposite. So I do feel like those decks are tough, but they are certainly beatable. Ooh, I also thought of something else that is worth noting. Not a single one of my collected company opponents respected Hollowed Moonlight. Okay. So I, I played some games of Hollowed Moonlight, and I think it's pretty bad out of Greenway Tokens. That actually doesn't surprise me at all. I don't disagree with you, but at the same time, it does show up in multiple sideboards. The last time I tested post-board games of Green-White against Bant Company, it was against Brad, mm-hmm. and he did not let me Hollow Moonlight him a single time. But honestly, every single Collecting Company that my opponent played against me in the tournament, I could have cast Moonlight against. Wow, mm-hmm. okay. I mean, that's, that's certainly interesting. I don't know if that means that I should, you know, put Hollow Moonlight in my sideboard, or if it means that People just need to be careful, you know? Like, they, they should play around that. Well, we do have three non-rares to get rid of. I know. And, and Moonlight, ooh, bless ooh. his heart, is a rare. Yeah. I think this um, leads us perfectly into our newest segment of the game podcast called Uvenwald Mysteries. Sound effect. So the Uvenwald Mysteries <laughs> are a series of mysteries that you cannot explain so for example jerry was just talking about how none of his collected uh, collected company opponents played around hallowed moonlight so we can file that under the uvenwald mysteries and then we'll talk about how we figure out these mysteries honestly so, honestly i'm gonna stop you there i think that's a really bad example but <laughs> we're we're not going to edit it. I know, it's not a mystery, man. I know the answer. They, they've just never had it happen to them. The end. God, steal my fire. Anyways, so the Uvenwald mystery is going to be a segment near the end of each podcast where we take some user questions. You can tweet at us at the game podcast and use the hashtag Uvenwald mysteries and we will answer your questions. So just for an example, I have an Uvenwald mystery for Jerry and Michael that they could not answer before the show which was, how is Seth Manfield so good at magic? But but I did answer Uvenwald it. mystery. I answered the question. Well, let's hear your answer I, again. It's the, just Seth just doesn't want to lose more than anyone else. He just finds a way. He just wills himself to win. I've seen him with the worst possible draft decks in existence full of like five and six mana, two threes, and he just three O's the Pro Tour draft, and it makes no sense. Can't confirm. Happens every Pro Tour, I swear to God. He just attacks and blocks perfectly, and he doesn't want to lose. I mean, I get it, but the point of Uvenwald Mysteries is that it's beyond science on how to explain it. Well, he doesn't want to lose, and he wills himself to win. That is not science. That Like, those things are also just mysteries. They are not explainable. Like, this is a good one. Yeah, I, I, agree. I, I don't know. He just, I'm, I'm not sure there is an answer to that, other than, you know, he plays That's perfectly. That's why it's an Uvenwald Mystery. I, I don't, I don't know. I just, I don't think this one counts. I'm sorry. No, this is a perfect one. What are you talking about? <laughs> Again, it can't be explained by science. All right, all right, Michael. All right, Michael. All right. Why can't a Geist Blast kill an Apothecary Geist? I don't, I don't know, man. <laughs> it's an open wall mystery. <laughs> <laughs> what else you got for us, Andrew? That, that was all I thought of right now. But I would rather the... <laughs> 
I would rather the users tweet at us so we can answer their questions on stream. Because, you know, me coming up with questions for you guys is kind of lame. But that will also transition us nicely into the game game where, Jerry, you'll ask some questions to us. The the game game. Yeah, I, we need to get an actual name for that probably. Ulvenwald Mysteries is pretty good. It, yeah, it, it, we'll it, work it, on it. In comparison to Ulvenwald Mysteries. But anyway, uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and explain this game. It is basically, uh, I have a subject... In this case, it's going to be Andrew, and then I'm going to ask Michael a question about Andrew. Michael's going to answer it. Andrew's going to maybe maybe explain his answer a little bit. And it is just a thing that we figured out on a car ride to just try and get to know each other a little bit better and just try and figure out where people are coming from and stuff. So uh, are we ready? Yes. All right, Michael. If Andrew were reincarnated, would he rather come back as... Just like some some sort of like small yet majestic bird, maybe like a sparrow or or a T-Rex. Okay, so question. If, if, if Andrew is reincarnated, is he a T-Rex like in modern times where he would be studied and held in captivity and have no, a horrible life? No, just, no, let's say, let's say he's reincarnated like, you know, 10,000 years into the future, like return of the dinosaurs, but now they have like cybernetic arms or something. I don't know, man. Just what, whatever you want. Just like, basically the question is just like, would, would Andrew rather be like this tiny frail creature, but have a lot of freedom or just be like this giant beatdown machine? I mean, I, I, I got the <laughs> metaphor, man. I just wanted to okay. get some context. No, he's not going to be like locked up in captivity. That doesn't seem very I mean, fun at all. Can you imagine if a T-Rex just sprouted out of the ground tomorrow? Like, <laughs> it, it would be insane. <laughs> Answer the you, question. You know what? I, I think Andrew would rather be a sparrow. I think he would he would rather enjoy his freedom rather than dominating the jungle. That's true. I'm just kind of not in for killing things that are alive. My feelings would get in the way. So well, actually, that's I my answer. T Rexes were scavengers, so that would actually be fine. That's my understanding. All right. Yeah, maybe they get a bad rap. Maybe I need to do some research on this question. I mean, the T Rex for sparrow <laughs> thing is, is, is just. <laughs> I do like giant beetle machine though. <laughs> Anyway, so we can confirm we th- we think you would rather be a sparrow, correct? Yeah, let's go with ninety percent sparrow. But if I'm a giant beatdown machine, I, I don't know. <laughs> that sounds kind of dope, right? Yeah, you're really selling it, Jerry. I don't know. And you don't have to be locked up in captivity, so that's nice. It's also true. Well, I was worried about. Okay, him. I didn't want him to be in captivity. Well, me neither, man. But also, like, the question is, what does he want? And I don't think he would want that. So anyway. Moving on. So this is my question about majors for Andrew. So Andrew, if yeah. if money were no issue whatsoever, would Michael Majors have a maid just to, you know, do his random busy work? Or would he do all the, like, cooking and cleaning himself? I stayed with Michael for only two days in my life so far. But I think I would have to go if he would get a maid. He recently mentioned that he would eat Taco Bell willingly. So that just throws all of this respect. respect. He would just never cook for himself. Yeah, dude. It's Taco Bell. It's delicious. You can't eat it. I've heard it called toxic hell. All right. I understand. Like, it's not something that I eat all the time, but it's a guilty pleasure. I enjoy it. Like, you know, if I'm going to eat crappy fast food, then why not be Taco Bell? But so, hey, anyway, the, this the is problem is inherent. The, the inherent problem is you are going to willingly eat shitty fast food. You said shitty. Listen, I listen, to be fair. I was being PG. To be fair, Michael did preface this whole thing with Jerry, how should I punish myself tonight? 
that, that is true. I am I'm well aware. I'm grounded in reality. Yeah, and I said, man, just get some get some T-bill. You know, I know that you'll enjoy it, and I know that you're down for some self-punishing. So that that just seems like the best way to do it. This just sounds like some like drug slang. The T-bell, like self-punishment. You guys are you guys are going overboard with this. Not well, see, we just, do things a little bit differently in Roanoke, Virginia, all right? I'm just trying to figure out how to feed myself tonight. That's all. I, you can just go to the store, buy some chicken and broccoli, and cook it, and it's delicious and it's healthy. I, I have groceries. This means that Michael would rather have the maid? The no, maid cause... snap yes. Snap okay. maid. I don't know. So I'm like So say you never have to like see her. Right? I don't know if that's like a weird uh, point of contention. Yes, that certainly is a factor. My original answer was going to be, so I'm kind of, you know, introverted, and I don't actually mind cooking and cleaning at all. I find them fairly relaxing, to be honest. So, like, I'd rather just do it on my own time. You know, if, like, you know, this maid just magically cleaned everything, then yeah, obviously that sounds great, but... <laughs> okay. So so maybe a little half and half? I don't know. Yeah, like, I, I certainly don't mind doing, like, menial tasks. I like cooking a lot more than cleaning. Cleaning kind of sucks. But at the same time, like... I derive like some pleasure from my surroundings being, you know, well kept. So I, I'm, I'm gonna go right. with I would do it myself. All right, I'm unconvinced. I think this this was a success. I like my questions a lot. I don't think I can top them. All right, well, there's always like three weeks from now, so you got some time. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Uh, I'm, I'm probably gonna have to start getting to work on those right now. <laughs> All right, Legacy this weekend. Andrew, you're not going? I've never played the format, actually, so good luck, guys. You're not going to come and hang out? No, I'm not going to fly across the country to hang out, but... It's like midway through the country. Eh, far enough. You know what? This this made me realize that Jerry actually played a tournament last week, so hats off to him. That's awesome. You guys are just the worst. But I guess Major, Majors is playing this weekend, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm back in the fray, baby. I'm ready to do it. All right. Sounds good. So now we have, you know, like a day to break legacy for Grand Prix Columbus or, you know, just build a steaming pile of a mess that we're going to play. And uh, I hope everything goes well. To be fair, I am going to play in the WMCQ in Santa Clara next weekend. Get ready for that. You talking about this weekend or the weekend? The after? weekend after this. OK, what what format is standard. it? Standard. Oh, you well, I mean, you, you have the best deck. Mm, Andrew. Yes. Is that the only WMCQ that weekend? Like, is it where it's like three different weekends still? Uh, no, they're they're just uh, spread out around or across the country. There's like one on the west side, one in the Midwest, and then one on the east side, but they're at different times. Oh, okay, so they are different weekends. Man, maybe I'll just come. That'd be great. No, no. Sh- should you not, you know, continue making your brisk jog for the Players' Championship <laughs> by playing jog. in the, the Star City Games Tour? SCG Atlanta Open standard format. Well, like I don't, I don't know how they do the branding anymore. I have to fly to Orlando or fly to California, but if I fly to California, I get five hundred dollars for showing up. So, oh, you're platinum. That is so busted. Uh, that's kind of busted. You also get two buys. That is straight. Really? Busted. Well, I yeah, yeah. Dude, Andrew, I think we're gonna be Dude. hanging out in two weeks. Oh my god, Dude. that's such gas. Majors, you have to go to these WMCQs. You I, just I have know. To. That's why I'm asking these questions. You're priced in. Yeah. All right. I how think. many how many buys does Michael Majors have for the SCG tour? I'm looking right a, now. A singular buy. All right. You're in 21st. That's not bad. As I slowly decay over time. Yeah. Stop doing that. Man. Do I have a buy, Jerry? No. I don't think you've played in any SCG events at all. So I'm guessing no. That's true. Sorry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Man, I want to go to Orlando. So last week I posted something on Twitter about how I liked having better numbers next to my name. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I don't know if either of you guys saw that, but then I, I had some pretty good numbers next to my name. And now I'm like second on the player of the year thing. And it looks pretty good. I'm third in season two point leaders, which does nothing for me, but still looks sweet. It's not bad. Yeah, man. I don't know. Now, now, now we got to figure this out. Am I going to a WMCQ or am I going to Orlando? Well, I'm from the West Coast, so none of your numbers make sense to me. Well, you're you're from the West Coast, but you also said that you did not want to fly all the way across the country just to hang out. So why should I do the same for you? Well, because you get to play in a gas tournament. I could do that over here, and I get to eat Giordano's pizza. Pizza's kind of gross, dude. And go to Disney World. <laughs> but But not as gross as Taco Bell. That's not even in the same conversation. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. All right, so Majors and I have some stuff to figure out. Uh, Andrew, if you want uh, to start practicing with this green-white token deck, that'd be great. I'm but otherwise, no. otherwise, otherwise, you can play your blue-red flyer deck instead of Crawlblade, man. Whatever you want to do. Dude, Jerry, I have Thing in the Ice on my sideboard. I also have Burn from Within. Boom, fireball in the face. It's been pretty sweet. Dude, that, that seems horrendous, really. <laughs> it just does. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm going to board in some blazes against you. Yeah, can't possibly beat these. Some welkin turns and some fireballs. Let's go. Dude, uh, that, that's just the deck that I like, deck. man. Yeah, it's just an aggressive limited deck. Yeah, I'll, I'll stick to my mono-mythic rare construction. <laughs> that's so bourgeois, man. It is, yeah, it dude. is. What wins in a fight, like 55 rares or 2-1 flyers? <laughs> Okay, well, uh, on that note, I suppose we will call it quits for this week. This has been episode three of The Game Podcast. Again, I am Jerry Thompson here with Andrew Brown, Michael Majors. You can find me on Twitter at G3RRYT. Andrew is at Merc underscore Lurker, even though he's playing like this blue-red burn flyer deck. I don't get it. And uh, Michael Majors is at Michael J. Majors, and we are at The Game Podcast. So... Thank you, everyone, for listening. It has been a lot of fun. Uh, Let us know what you thought about the deck tech format, and uh, we'll see you next week. That's game. Game. (laughs) Blouses. (laughs) 